0: The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Vulture TV podcast. I'm your host, Gazella Mami. On this week's show, we'll be talking about shows that reset in season two and the latest season of Orange is the New Black. That's coming up, but first, if you have any questions for us or ideas for topics you'd like to hear, leave us a voicemail at 646 504 7673 or email us at tvquestionsbulcher.com. Hmm. I'm here with New York Magazine TV critic Matt Solar Hey, Gazelle. Hi, Matt. And we're very excited to welcome Vulture's new TV columnist, Jen Cheney, to the podcast. Hi, I'm very excited to be here. Hey, Jen. (laughs) We've been waiting for you. (laughs) I've been waiting for this. (laughs) We've been waiting for you, Jen Cheney. (laughs) Have a seat. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's really nice to have a third member regularly because Matt and I have been flying by the seat of our pants a bit. Sometimes literally. (laughs) (laughs)
1: We have an elaborate harness system that hooks into the belt loop and carries us <laughs> over the
0: microphones. It's really crazy. It's been really weird. <laughs> well, I'm happy to be here. Um, so we're going to be talking, you know, more in depth about this new season of Orange is a New Black, but before we get into that, we thought we'd touch on a subject we've kind of talked about before, which is, you know, how shows are dealing with the kind of churn of like uh basically Blowing through plot is one way that a lot of shows do it. But, like, kind of staying interesting in this crowded television landscape. Um, And, you know, one thing that we've seen as a result of that is the anthology series Mm -hmm. where you have shows that have a whole new story every season. Um, Or they're just a limited series. But I think we're kind of starting to see some things that happen a little bit in this gray area where they're not exactly you know, new stories completely, but they are kind of taking you on a new journey than you did in maybe the first season. I think one example we can start with that we all love, I think, is The Leftovers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which, which, you know, was an example of a show that also kind of, um, its second season was kind of a comeback. It, it was, that's kind of how it was seen because a lot of people didn't like the first season. Well,
1: yeah, there was that. And I think another factor was that the ending of season one was so complete. It was an annihilation. It was like an apocalyptic conflagration. And uh, where where do you go from there? Was the question. And they actually find, found somewhere to go, which was this town whose uh, inhabitants were mysteriously untouched by the uh, – I don't know what you would call it. The, the departure. Uh, the, 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 departure. departure <laughs> the departure, right. I, I keep wanting to call it the rapture. Well, um, it's
2: understandable that you <laughs> wouldn't want to call yeah. it
1: that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and that, that, was, uh, that was a great way to – I like this phrase half-reboot because that's kind of what it is. Although um, some of the better TV shows have found ways to do their own version of that like – the three seasons of Deadwood were so distinctive and the first one was kind of introducing you to the town and showing you the camp becoming – starting to become a town. And then in season two, you see sort of the growing pains and the and the, uh, the battles that they're having with the county government. And in the third one, they introduced this character, George Hurst, played by Gerald McCraney who – is a gold uh, millionaire who just basically comes in and starts trying to buy up the town and buy up the government along with it and it becomes a much darker show And in fact and we're going to get to this but orange is a new black this this plot line of having the private prison system this conglomerate come in and take over the prison um reminded me a little bit of that George Hurst season of Deadwood and that it it was just dark it was just dark very heavy compared to the I mean it was no walk deadwood was never a walk in the park where you you know Throwing, throwing flowers behind you and singing a happy tune. But, you know, it's a, season three, even by the standards of Deadwood, was a dark season. Yeah.
2: You know? well, mentioning Deadwood just made me think of The Wire as well because, right. again, the characters for the most part were staying the same, assuming they hadn't gotten killed off at some point. But it was coming at looking at Baltimore from through a different prism every single season right. um, in, in a way sort of like a reboot. But, you know, with The Leftovers, I mean, part of the issue there too was that they basically – they had told the whole story of what was in that novel in season one. So they kind of had to come up with somewhere to go if they were going to continue having a show. And I feel like that's the way things used to happen years and years ago when people did feel like they had to retool something. It was because the show had been on for a while and circumstances dictated it, like – Let's move Laverne to California because Cindy Williams is arguing with people and there's a problem and we're just going to have a lot of Laverne on Laverne and Shirley now. And that's – felt very weird. Um, right. Whereas now I think people are making those choices. The, the artists behind them are making the choices consciously like let's do this different thing and, and planning it out beforehand as opposed to like scrambling to adjust. Right. And I mean and sometimes, again, circumstances dictate it. Like if you have a show that's about high school, for example – Eventually, some of those characters are going to get a little bit older and you're going to have to figure out, are we going to keep going with this? Are we going to send them all to college like we did on Nine Hundred Two and 90210? What are we going to do? I think the best example of dealing with that issue was Friday Night Lights and shifting things to East Dillon. And so having some of those characters um, that were in the first couple seasons were still very much a part of it. But you could see them kind of moving forward with their lives. But then also meet these other new characters who were still in high school And that's always a gamble because it's it's that – it reminds me of that Poochie episode of The Simpsons where they bring in Poochie the rockin' dog and you're like, am I going to like Poochie? I don't know. (laughs) Um, But on Friday Night Lights, they're just so good at developing character that you cared about a lot of those people as much as you did – well, maybe not as much as Riggins, but everybody else. (laughs) (laughs) Although although it did
1: introduce – there were some problems. There's always some problems that are introduced along with the successes and I think one of them on Friday Night Lights was dividing our narrative – energy between two locations and i know that's obviously not a deal breaker it's a great show but there was some awkwardness there Mm -hmm. for a while until they got a handle on it
0: right and in the leftovers i think that was a concern as well you have like these new characters we've never met before and what was so surprising is they were all so immediately compelling in that very first episode
2: yeah i mean and to start aside from the whole you know cavewoman thing in the beginning which was jarring enough but then to have the whole first episode be about the murphys yeah and to have you be as immediately interested as you were was it was really a pretty bold great
0: move that's that great and, and that's
1: something that i think a lot more shows are availing themselves of this 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 option to it's not just resetting the story it's it's coming at the subject from an entirely different character perspective Mm -hmm. where you can you don't just introduce a new character and have them be introduced to the characters you're familiar with and give them one or two scenes you do an entire episode from their perspective
0: yeah and unreal is another show that's doing that in its second season uh where you know it's kind of built into the plot which is that every season of the show is a season of of everlasting yeah everlasting although i would be curious to see if they ever switch that up um, and maybe, you know, they, there's flexibility. You could have two seasons on a reality show. You don't have to limit it to that, but that's what it seems to be that they're doing. It's all, it's amazing how well they're able to pull oh. it off, k- given what a huge cast it is of all these different contestants on this show, mm-hmm. and that uh, it's, it's a, similar to Orange is the New Black in a way where you have all these people who are dehumanized and you're able to sympathize with them to this degree you never would have... Thought you were capable of sympathizing with reality TV show stars.
2: I mean, it's still early in this second season of Unreal, st- right? But I, I feel like they're also, from what I can see so far, is they're coming at it again from a different theme, like trying to. And obviously, race is a huge issue in this mm-hmm. particular season in a way that it wasn't in the previous season. So, uh, uh, framing something around a theme is something you, like you were we were talking about with The Wire. Right. And other shows do that a lot too, and that helps. I'm sure it helps in the writer's room to give them a sense of focus around what they're doing.
1: Yeah, I would say that this season of Orange is the New Black, maybe more so than any other, you can say that it's about a particular thing, which is the dehumanization of um, that institutions inflict on the people that they're supposed to be taking care of. That's another thing that reminded me of Deadwood and also, uh, as you were saying, is of The of the Wire, uh, particularly the, the public school season of The Wire.
0: With Orange is the New Black, we also have the the fact that the show has been greenlit for three more seasons, so we know it's going to be a seven-season show. And that seems like a, a lot of seasons for a show that is a prestige show. I mean, I'm assuming there's going to be even more than that if they've already greenlit it for three seasons at once. But that's it's kind of the type of churn you would expect more of a procedural-type show. Um, right. But it does seem like it's uniquely suited to to deal with that kind of... Reinvention every year because there are characters where, in this season, we've been we've seen them for three seasons before this, but we had no idea what their backstory was, and only in this season are we finally getting to know them. Right, and you know you have inmates coming in and out. You you have obviously this flashback structure that allows you to um, exit the prison. Our one of our freelancers, Catherine Van Arndel, wrote a great piece about how they handle this kind of and how it will be particularly well suited to last for that many seasons.
1: Yeah, it is. And in fact, we've talked about this on the show in the past, this this idea that some of the most durable shows are ones that are not about characters specifically. They're built around the institutions that the characters happen to be associated with. Mm-hmm. You know, be be it the town on Deadwood, the advertising agency on Mad Men, um, the camp on MASH. And and I've 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 talked a lot on this show about the similarities between Orange Is the New Black and Mash, and and particularly just the ceremonies, the way that the the plot lines are anchored to these these ceremonies, these rituals like the arrival of the new inmates, the the uh, the inmates arrive in groups and they leave as individuals, but also the way that management can change, like they can take a certain person out of a, a particular job, put somebody else in there, or they can bring in an entirely new sort of structure like they did this season with the private prison take completely taking over. Um, and that changes things, too. And as Catherine's piece pointed out, you can take people out of the cast, put people into the cast, and it doesn't feel like they're just um, jerking the audience's chain too much because it's a prison and this happens in a prison, right, right. just like in on a hospital show like doctors leave, new doctors come in, nurses get promoted, there's new management, you know, a, 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 a different hospital corporation might buy the hospital and that changes things. These are all things that are that are in the toolkit that they can use.
0: Mad Men also kind of did that a bit with kind of blowing everything up and starting a new season with Sterling Cooper Draper Price.
1: They did. Yeah, and I loved how the uh, the identity of the ad agency was kind of wonderfully mirroring Don's progress through mm-hmm. the story where he's a guy who's constantly blowing things up and starting all over again. Yeah. <laughs> and and the agency itself does that too and it sort of shifts its identity as the as the show goes along. But another thing that Mad Men had going for it in terms of keeping things fresh was that part of the show was this idea of these characters and this ad agency moving through a decade. And so there was a certain amount of um, freshness built into it every season because you could say – and in fact, people wrote articles about this before a new season would begin. It's like, what fashions are we going to see? What pop culture high points are they mm-hmm. going to hit? What music do you think they'll use?
2: It's a little different, but with the Americans too, I, I
0: find myself doing that a little bit as well.
1: Yeah, it's like, are they going to use 99 lifter balloons or what?
0: <laughs> <laughs> and also just kind I hope of they do. predict <laughs> when is this all going to – fall apart for them yeah. what is the point at which it's going to coincide maybe with history and
1: yeah i wonder how far ahead they're going to jump yeah. the story is it going to be uh are they? are we going to go all the way to the fall of the berlin wall Where or it would be the stop earlier
2: place but i don't know
1: it would be but then they've never uh, they've really done a great job of avoiding the obvious choice right. on that right. show so i tend to think that they're not going to do that i mean maybe it'll end with the family watching rocky four <laughs>
2: <at a> theater <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> and rooting for the russian
2: right I mean that's the other thing too. Like with when we're talking about shows that are based around decades, or even just talking about a show where, let's say hypothetically, Orange is the New Black ends after these next couple seasons that they've already commissioned, where you know what your endpoint is, or you know what your framework is in a decade. It just it helps to then develop what the themes are going to be of a season, you know, in, from a long term point of view. Um, you know, that was something that happened on Lost. And please mark the time I have gotten this far into a podcast and I just mentioned Lost for the first time, <laughs> which I, I thought it would happen a lot sooner. Um, but, you know, they reached that point where, I mean, they were clearly kind of flying by the seat of their pants when when they were right. writing that show, but developing this very deep mythology um, that mean, made it feel very planned. Um, and so when they were finally able in, in season three to say, okay, we're going go to go through six and that's it, I think that helped them... Uh, start to structure things in a different way and some would argue that it still didn't help them enough because maybe they weren't happy with the ending of the show but nevertheless i think um when you know what your end point is it just makes a whole difference in terms of developing a wider narrative arc Mm -hmm. for a show
1: i think most of the really good shows uh and this is i think almost something that just showrunners and writers are trained to do which is you know you often you don't know when you're writing the show if you're going to get another season so they try to make every season finale double as a series finale if it comes to that. Right, right. And some shows are better at that than others. But I think almost every uh, season finale of Mad Men could have doubled for a series finale. But Jen, something you were saying just about this, this the architecture of these shows, the more that I – study how these shows are made, the more respect I have for the people who make them. I think there's this perception among people who are not professional writers that if you are telling a story, you are just coming up with some characters and having stuff happen to them. Mm-hmm. And of course, on the mas- most basic level, that's true. But there are structural things like the, like television writing is a very left brain activity. Like it's very right brain in certain ways, but it's very left brain in the sense that you have a certain number of episodes you have a certain you know you'll often have an a plot a b plot maybe a c or a d plot depending on how many characters you have on the show like orange is the new black they probably have an you know an f and a g plot there's so hmm. many characters on the show game of thrones has like multiple alphabets it is that's true they're inventing new alphabets uh, alphabet uh, letters but um and then but then you also have um what is the theme of this season? What is the theme of this half season? And sometimes you might have the season has a theme, but then an individual episode might have its own theme that is tangentially related to the main ongoing theme of the season. And, like, this stuff, like, when you talk about this stuff, once you actually sort of visualize it on a wall, and I've seen the walls in writers' rooms, like, it looks like math. Yeah. It's it really puzzles. looks like math. I mean, it is yeah. puzzles.
2: Yeah.
0: It's it's very uh, intimidating. Yeah, <laughs> and as much, as much uh, attention you know limited series are getting these days for being kind of superior yeah. it kind of doesn't acknowledge the amount of work and kind of c- creativity on this much more ambitious level even to carry on a story for that long
1: yeah mm-hmm. that's true and something some things are going on on some of these anthology shows the better ones um Fargo immediately springs to mind where i feel like they're doing their equivalent of that, but at the level of the anthology. Mm-hmm. And, and the moment that this kind of clicked for me was Martin Freeman narrating a history of crime in the Midwest.
0: Season
1: one, right? No. Um, oh, oh, right. Season Sorry. two. Season yeah. two, he's narrating.
0: Right, right, right. Yeah,
1: and they're showing you – they actually show you the book.
0: <laughs> yes, they I actually, remember that. They
1: actually show you the book and, and, and that uh, – in theory, they don't quite come out and say it so explicitly. But in theory, like every season of this show could be a chapter of this true crime book.
0: Yeah, and even with shows like that, I mean going back to what you were saying about knowing when it's going to end and when, you know, having the chance to plan out your themes. We were talking to Noah Hawley on last week's podcast and, you know, Matt asked him about how long he could keep this going where you have this kind of theme and you kind of address it in different ways in every season, but will that start to feel repetitive at some point? And, you know, even with a show where you have an entirely new plot every season. He was like, maybe three seasons is enough. I have no idea if there will be enough to do more after that. And he's like, I'm lucky because I'm at FX and they are much more willing to give creators the flexibility to tell the stories the way they want to, more so the network. But it's really
1: great, though, that he has that leeway where he can jump. Uh, You know, I did not expect the time jump in season two. Yeah, that was great. And it really sets the imagination of racing, because like in that particular part of the world, historically, so many different interesting things have happened. You don't think of you don't think of uh, the Great Plains as being a a terribly exciting place, but it is. And you have uh, everything from like the westward migration and what that did to the Indians Mm -hmm. to, you know, like, what was this area like during Prohibition? If you had told me as a kid that television would ultimately look like this, I would have said, "What the fuck are you talking
2: about?" <laughs> you know,
1: like like this idea. Like you mentioned Laverne, Laverne and Shirley. Like just to age
2: myself a little, I well, thought I'd bring know, out but, a Laverne and Shirley reference. Yeah, but you know,
1: Laverne and Shirley like shows. Like when I was a kid, you had stuff like you know the Incredible Hulk. Like the story of the Incredible Hulk is David Banner goes to a different town. And encounters somebody who has a problem and eventually some mean guys beat him up and he turns into the Hulk and kicks their asses and then he has to (laughs) leave town. That was the plot. Like every episode, that was the plot. And like the $6 million man, it would be like he has a mission. Very often the mission invites him uh, – involves him getting into a fight with a creature or person who is also bionic. And then the, the show slips into slow, shifts into slow motion. Like, the $6 million man really should have been a half-hour show. It was only an hour long because of all the goddamn slow motion. Everything was slow motion on that show. Like, he couldn't cross a room to make a sandwich without them going into slow motion. But I digress. Um, but but that kind of sophistication, they just didn't have it. And any show that attempted this sort of, like, narrative or structural sophistication got canceled.
2: Consistency was what the value was. Like, that was what they thought viewers wanted, and and probably did to some extent. Whereas now, not inconsistency, but just surprising you. Ah!
0: Look, Squinchy! It's our new friend, Poochie! What's that name again? I forgot. The name's Poochie D, and I rock the telly. I'm half Joe Camel
1: and a third Fonzarelli. I'm the Kung Fu Hippie from Gangsta City. I'm a rapping surfer, you to fool I pity is oh, one outrageous dude. The animal, the animal trap, trap, trap till the cages fall, the cages fall. The day is new, and everyone is waiting, waiting on you.
0: conversation around Orange is the New Black in season four has largely focused on the last two episodes, which I definitely want to talk about. But I thought we could start by just talking about this season more broadly first. Um, Jen, you wrote, you wrote a review of it for Vulture. Um, and you talked a little bit about how the first half is a little more shaky. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, I mean... Especially the first episode, uh, but I felt like this was true of, of several of the early ones where things just felt very, very forced and and some of the dialogue just was not s- as strong as I've come to expect from, from that show. And for example, like in the first episode when they're all kind of tr- – the new inmates and the preexisting inmates are all kind of trapped while they're trying to figure out what to do. I felt like that went on for just ages. Like mm-hmm. I just felt like those – That episode and maybe a couple of the other ones needed to just be edited much more tightly than they were. Um, But once I got to the second half of the season and then, as you said, those last two or three episodes, like you felt like they were laying the foundation for Mm -hmm. something that was going to be really important and worthwhile and explosive at the end. But it was it was I felt tough going like and after
0: that first episode, I was like, wow, what is going on? The first episode, I completely agree. I thought it was one of the weaker premieres of the, the series. And I think. Partially, I just didn't love the murder plot, and it felt very jarring just to come back to this show and have them immediately murder a person and have to deal with cutting up his body and I
1: Yeah, yeah. they kill this hit man who's in a guard uniform, and they spend like the next what two or three episodes worrying about the disposal of his corpse, right. and they buried pieces of his body in the garden. And I don't know, this. that whole part of it just felt like wasted motion. When you've got like five or 10 or 15 fairly important new characters being introduced, it's like, why are we spending time on this?
0: Right, right. You know? It didn't feel like it was all that necessary in the end either. Like it felt like this tangential plot line that maybe was being used to tell us more about Lolly. Mm-hmm. And I, I loved the Lolly episode. Actually, I loved getting her backstory. I loved the person they picked to play the younger version of her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think you know they're trying to maybe bring in some sort of parallel point um, to other themes that are going on in the season. But I just don't think it was the strongest. Also,
1: it was very caval. It, it was cavalier about death in a way that the show is usually not. And it was, and and it becomes the contrast becomes especially onerous when you get to the end of the season and you've got the death of a major character that's taken very, very seriously.
0: Right. I think they tried to get at that with Alex kind of putting his name in the garden and like kind of. They try to handle the death with that level of, like, this is something that is affecting the character. Yeah, and she talked right. about season, how she actually but, had, but,
2: had known the guy and had gone right. you know, gone out with him. And yeah, but I I it, it just I, it didn't quite
1: work. I guess I'm just thinking more of, like, the actual chopping up of the body.
0: Yeah, You right, know, like, I believe, right. like,
1: if I'm watching a show like The Sopranos, where presumably these guys do this kind of thing all the time,
0: mm-hmm. then
1: I can accept it being played for black comedy, but maybe not so much here.
2: I think when I got to the end of the whole season— I understood a little bit more why they did that because, you know, to me, it was another illustration of who's really responsible for this death. It was a little complicated because technically Lolly was. But then when Alex comes back, actually, he's still alive. And so she really is the one who takes his last breath away. So they're both responsible. But who gets blamed for it? It's it's the mentally ill woman. Um, and so I, I felt like they were trying to, through another storyline, talk about um, the way that it, certain people get targeted for blame in situations and the just general ambiguity um, in a way that I think they dealt with much more effectively with the Poussey storyline. Um, right. And even with the Pensatucky rape stuff too. But I, th- I felt like that was what the purpose of that was. But to your point, maybe they didn't need to spend as much time on it as they did. Or they could have made that point just as effectively with the other two
0: storylines. Right. No, you, I mean, you you wrote a good piece this week about how the show kind of forces us to sympathize with the aggressors in the situations. So Poussey's storyline, for one, we have this guard um, choke her to death on, like, he's not aware that he's doing it. But, right. um And we've spent part of that episode looking at his past and, you know, f- building up sympathy for him. And the same thing with Pensatecki's storyline, mm-hmm. where the rape storyline from season three continues and you have her aggressor from season three kind of get redeemed in her eyes, at least. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, can you talk a little bit about how the show, you know, that point you were making about Alex's storyline and how, you know, it does make us sympathize with them, but only up to a point where in the end, who does the system protect?
2: Right. Yeah. I mean, well, I'll I'll start with the, the code storyline with the, the rape storyline. Um, you know that character is presented, and I have a feeling we'll see like a backstory on that guy um, next season because, um, in a lot of ways, he seems like a very nice person and a sensitive person. But it it seems like once he starts getting into anything that has to do with sexuality, like a a, a switch gets flipped in him, and he does not know how to normally deal with someone.
0: Right. Um, even even when you see you know Pensatucky kiss him at, towards the end of the season, yeah, like he seems to know. He sh- he can't be doing it because like it just can't end well. Yeah, like he's, yeah. she
2: starts to look afraid of him again. Yeah, for for good reason I think. Um, and, and you know you have Big Boo the whole time saying, "Hey, this is this is rape. This is unforgivable." Kind of b- giving that voice to it. So I, I think the show is. By no means forgiving him for what he did to her, nor is it – you know, there's often on TV shows these conversations. Was that rape for real or was it not rape? You know, Game of Thrones, we have that conversation all the time. On The Leftovers even last season, there was Mm -hmm. uh, an incident like that. This, I think, was very, very clear. Like she was definitely raped. There's no question about it. But it's a
0: question of is such a thing ever forgivable? I mean this is a prison and we are spending time with the inmates and the guards – Especially in season one, I think, you know, it was very much the guards were the villains. And then only in later seasons have they become much more sympathetic characters. And yeah, I I like that they challenged us to do that. And I I particularly liked it with Poussey's storyline because of how it ends up with Caputo defending him in the Mm -hmm. end. And just after watching Caputo you know struggle with wanting to be a good guy throughout the whole season having it end with him not even acknowledging her death is so devastating as a viewer too that like yeah. and you you understand you know why he's doing this it puts you in the position of sympathizing but as you with with the guard who actually kills her but as you pointed out in your piece Jen the system ultimately protects these people mm-hmm. so yes you can forgive them but like the inmates are the ones who we f- can forgive them but the system won't they also do a really good job of making it clear
2: that there is an element of race going on too um the sort of the the lead guard whose name just flew out of my head but the guy who tells bailey like to restrain Suzanne, and he refers P- to her piscatella? as piscatella piscatella thank mm-hmm. you yeah um, a great
1: character yes
2: yeah and and refers to her as an animal mm-hmm. um you know i mean the show is not saying oh, race is not an issue here. It's saying it certainly is. But because there's all these other mitigating factors, that it's very easy for somebody else to say, well, this is why this happened. And this is why this happened. And then the core issues that cause these things to happen in the first place are never
0: resolved. Uh, how do you think that they handled the the death of Poussey, just that whole episode? What I think a lot of viewers, myself included, it was a very emotional scene to watch. Mm-hmm. Did you...
1: It's big. It's big and it's, you know, it's handled with the appropriate power and it almost has a kind of a literary bigness to it. Mm-hmm. I thought it was great. I thought, you know, it's one of those kind of legendary TV deaths. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know?
0: And I think this is, you know, in a year of television when people have been really upset about death on television and how it's been um, how it's been handled from the 100, killing off the lesbian character just Sleepy Hollow, killing off Abby, the black character who, you know, was a huge part of the show. I I think that it has felt often this past season that death has been used more as a plot device. And, you know, this we've talked about trauma on the show before and how certain shows handle it better than others and how it affects other characters. And like, does a death just happen and nobody remembers anymore? Does a rape happen and it doesn't affect anyone again because it's just a plot device? Where on this show, you you know, obviously everyone is very affected by it. I thought it was, I thought it was really well done. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, the other day when I was writing that piece and you and I were trying to figure out exactly
2: what she was mouthing in those last yeah. moments, I had to go back and like watch that over and over again. And every
0: time Danielle Brooks like collapses, it's just like that's, unbelievable. That's the part that, and she just amazing her yeah. performance but yeah that's the part that gets you you know this yeah. person you also haven't seen her interact with tasty very much this season at all right and you know they have this deep bond and then to you know to have her be the one curling around her body well something i wanted to
2: say about the death we mm-hmm. is that i, I feel like there's some african-american viewers who didn't react to it in the same way i had a conversation with a woman you know on twitter about it who um she felt like it wasn't responsible. Like it was, I hate to put her words in my mouth because I'm not going to represent them well enough, but um, that it was sort of written in a way that would make white people like understand it, but it's like cheapened it somehow in her mm-hmm. mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and like fusion just did a piece about how none of the writers on orange is the new black are are black. And so they, there was some kind of a lack of perspective um, about that. And like, for example, by, the character who dies being Pussay, who is somebody who's in prison for really very minor offenses. Um, we know that she's a really good-hearted person. We know that she seems to have a future after she gets out of jail. Um, this woman was suggesting, like, well, what if, what if a quote-unquote more stereotypically threatening character, like, for example, what if V, who, who hadn't been killed off, and V had been the one, like, would that have been? a bolder move would that have said something more than just killing off this character who well, was so
0: I mean likable. I think I think they did want to have you know the black lives matter parallel mm-hmm. and you couldn't really have that with V
1: Well and also there's this kind of subplot going on in the season about the black inmates losing some of their juice in the prison you know mm-hmm. and it's partly an institutional issue with this kind of unspoken latent racism on the part of the, you know, the prison management always already had a touch of that. But mm-hmm. now with this private prison coming in and taking over, it's even more so. Um, and then you've got the Blair Brown character, who's basically, I guess, like a like a Martha Stewart or, or like, what, what's the name of the Food Network uh, yeah, racist? She's pa-
2: Paula Deen. Oh, Paula Deen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What's the name of that racist cook lady? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, and and you know, so really, in a way, it almost seems like the horrible culmination of a lot of the things that were discussed up until that point. Like, there's a lot of yeah. conversations on the show. It's like we are we are being marginalized even further now, and the influx of of Latin inmates is also contributing to that. And then there's these, and also and the, with the, the white I,
2: supremacists and the white supremacists, <laughs> and
1: and yeah, and it's just you know that's all like, are we is are we going to be forgotten? Is our story going to be right. forgotten? Is a subject that's very much on the show's mind? Yeah,
2: uh, I, uh, and sh- just one other thing sure. too, I think. Um, part of it too maybe for this particular woman and for maybe some other people as well was that in some real life circumstances like the guys who kill people in those kinds of situations are not these nice boys who were just confused. Like they are really aggressive and doing things very deliberately. Right. And I think maybe that was part of it too that they felt like this is letting this whole issue off the hook a little too much by making Bailey such a sympathetic
0: character. Where it gets tricky is, you know, it's obviously making a real life parallel, but it also is it's also a plot that's existing within the world of the show. And within the world of the show, what their trademark is, is creating sympathy for people you wouldn't expect to have sympathy for. So I think it works well within the world of the show. But then, like, it's not going to be an exact parallel to how these issues play out in real life. But you still have that kind of thread. So. You know, I, I think it's a good discussion to have, you know, mm-hmm. and I think that that's one of the best things to come out of it. I don't know if you
2: guys felt this way, but I thought um, the the Bailey flashback, a, a lot of it reminded me of Dazed and Confused. I don't know if that was on purpose or not, but just them oh, climbing yeah. the,
0: that tower mm-hmm. and stuff uh, that really reminded me of that a lot. Yeah. The flashbacks are something I wanted to talk about, too, just, you know how good they are I mean I thought the most powerful one was the Suzanne flashback oh yeah for sure the Suzanne one
2: not the last two
0: episodes but the one prior to that like the third to last and with that one you actually presumably find out why she's in prison which is um, killing this child Unaccidentally. And again, there's another great thing where it's like it's not really her fault,
2: but yet it kind of is, because she sorta kidnapped him even though she didn't really probably realize that's what she was doing. Um, It's it's again just more another example of ambiguity around who's culpable for something. I mean in the one flashback that I thought they utilized most effectively throughout the season, I mean a lot of the times the flashbacks they inform your notions of a character, but then you just move on to the next thing. But the the Healy flashback like that informed yeah. so much about him throughout the entire season and the choices he was making and his attitude toward Lolly. I mean that that like kept paying off.
1: Yeah, and he and the fact that he was basically abandoned by his mother mm-hmm. explains a lot about his sort of reflexive misogyny and a lot of his interactions with these women. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, like it doesn't excuse it, but it explains it.
0: Right. I also really loved uh Ramos's the um the woman who uh, drives the car, And you, in your your flashbacks, you see what a master manipulator she is. I thought those were really yeah. fun too, which like I don't usually feel in the flashbacks. Like they had this suspense element that I really enjoyed. That you don't. Yeah, usually it was get almost like a com- it was like
1: a comedy. It was like yeah. it was like a, a slapstick comedy yeah.
0: almost. and you're just like seeing what a smart person she is, how she can think on the fly, and it just that really. Um, and then when you see her kind of decide when it's time to just extract from that situation, you're like, she knows, she knows how this can end up, yeah, yeah. and there's self preservation involved, too. yeah.
1: I like the flashbacks just because they all, even though the details are different, for me as a viewer, they all serve the same function, which is a new character is introduced, or you are looking at a character that you feel like you're familiar with and you've got a handle on, and then suddenly new information complicates your view, right. Of them. And it's very similar to when I read a news story about a crime. And it's just something about the way the typical news story is structured where you read the details of the crime and you go, oh, my God, that's horrible. That person is a horrible human being. They should they should get life in prison or the chair or whatever the punishment is you mm-hmm. know, for that. And then you start to read the details of their life. And usually when somebody gets to the point where they're capable of murder – it's very rare that somebody who had a really excellent life with a lot of love and support does something like that. You mm-hmm. know, It's usually like the cycle right. of abuse kind of asserting itself and paying itself forward. And that's something that we don't really like to admit in this country because we have this black and white view of crime and punishment and morality for the most part. And this show does such a great job of of digging into that.
0: That's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. Don't forget to email us your questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673. The Vulture TV podcast is produced by Sam Dingman. Laura Mayer is our managing producer and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. I'm Gazella Mommy, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellefant.
2: I'm Jen Chaney, and you can find me on Twitter at ChaneyJ. Sorry, i this. Anyway. And Matt has food in his <laughs> mouth. As is often the
1: case. I'm Matt Zollersites, and you can reach me on Twitter at Matt Zollersites.
0: Thanks for listening.